The Zone is presented by Guaranteed Foods, delivering all natural food to Midwestern families since 1958. Enjoy healthier food, more free time, free delivery, and better value. Go to GuaranteedFoods.com. I will continue right here on Sports Radio 810 WHB. Jason Anderson with you, Josh Briscoe, Dylan Michaels. We head up until 2 o'clock. We'll head down to Surprise, Arizona and uh, talk with uh, Jack Johnson, who's down there helping us cover the Royals. And then Todd Lebo will join us coming up at uh, 1 o'clock right now. Let's talk some college hoops with our college basketball insider from ESPN, Myron Medcap. He joins us benefiting Jackson County Casa, court-appointed special advocates, community volunteers just like you who stand up and speak out to help children who have experienced abuse or neglect. Jackson County CASA recruits, trains, and supports these CASA volunteers to advocate for the best interests of children who are in the Jackson County family court system until they have a safe and permanent home. JacksonCountyCASA-MO.org. Myron, welcome to the show. How are you, sir? I'm doing well, man. How are y'all doing, man? It's been a been a hell of a week man it has uh certainly it has been uh it's been a crazy week yeah it's been um all what now uh six days so yeah was uh was it a, a unbelievable uh few weeks and then uh what was an awesome day turned uh tragic quickly and uh people are uh are recovering and um you know certainly physically mentally trying to recover uh and a lot of people trying to do their part along the way so uh so yeah we are we are getting through, uh, trying to get some uh, a break in people's lives by just uh, talking some sports as much as possible. Yeah, man. I, I had some friends down at the play, man, and just you know, thought all the great people I knew in, in Kansas City, man. And, you know, it's just uh, it's one of those moments that puts everything in. Mm-hmm. perspective for sure man yep absolutely and it uh, you know it, it brings everybody together and it brings everybody it, it takes the labels away from player to fan to coach and all of that stuff when you've got players that are stepping up and trying to you know help out kids and um uh, uh, uh talking with kids and trey smith giving his wwe championship belt to a kid who was inconsolable and yeah. clyde edwards alaire picking up a kid to shield him um you know and just uh, many different stories like that that we heard, and also just the regular heroes uh, that are that were down there anyway that weren't Chiefs players, that were just, uh, you know, citizens, humans uh, stepping up. So in some of the bad stories, you also see the humanity that comes through as well. So, yeah, that's that the truth, man. Yeah. You exactly. know, it, it shouldn't take that to bring us together, but no, you're right. That That's sometimes what what happens, man. Yeah. So, yeah, definitely just want to check in on you guys because that yeah. was, you know, an incredible high for what mm-hmm. they achieved and – the first dynasty, you know, I think we've had in 20 years, um, mm-hmm. and that was just a tough moment after. Yep, absolutely. Myron Metcalf from ESPN, thank you for uh, for that as well. Um, I, we'll talk some college basketball, but I do want to start with news that broke um, yesterday right around this time, I believe it was uh, yesterday, or maybe it was uh, yesterday at 11 o'clock, but uh, Desiree Reed-Francois, the Missouri Athletic Director, uh, has left uh, Mizzou and has taken the Arizona job, so going to uh, a, a job that is Pac-12 but now going to be the Big 12 but leaving an SEC job. Um, from from things we're hearing uh, from people we trust that certainly know the situation and are as tied in there, uh, that people around the university were, quote, stunned uh, that she ended up taking the Arizona job. And this uh, uh, oversight committee that they developed on February 8th with uh, four individuals that will oversee the athletic department and money spent and the uh, the future of college athletics, um, things like that, typically what an AD would do, uh, was, uh, quote, the straw that broke the camel's back, that there was tension present. What do you, what do you make of what's going on there to, the, at Mizzou now that is looking for an AD 
um, that may have this committee that turned off one AD. Uh, they have a college football coach that seems to be up and running. And they now have a college basketball coach who's uh, looking at the clock uh, speeding up pretty quickly in his tenure. Well, lo- looks like uh, the transfer portal is real for ADs, too, I guess. You, you know, I mean, <laughs> it, it's interesting because Arizona, where I was just there about a month ago, that, that's a tough situation, man. I mean, they got a lot going on. Yeah. You know, they got some real budget issues. Obviously, the move to the Big 12 it, it will be a boost, uh, but. Um, it, it, it will be interesting to see kind of how they work all of that out because, you know, yes, Mizzou had its challenges, but I don't think anyone can look at Arizona right now and say that they don't have their challenges as well. Everyone I talked to, everything I've read and heard was that it was uh, a stunning move, right, to, to make that move because, again, it's, it's if, you, if you told me it was a program where you go, okay, obvious fit, they got a lot going on, you come in there, it makes sense. But, I mean, she's going to Arizona at a time when Arizona has a lot of work to do um, in order to get back into a proper financial standing. So, uh, you know, I see both sides of it. Obviously, what happened at Mizzou, mm-hmm. that's got to be a concern. That contributed to her decision to want to leave. But to leave for that should also be concerning because it's not like she left for I think the perfect job for someone in her role. Yeah, um, and and one of the things that uh, we talked about today, and just sort of going back over it, it's like okay, so if everybody's stunned, didn't see it happening, um, and uh, this oversight committee was the straw that broke the camel's back, was she running from the Mizzou job and just simply done, and I'll take whatever's out there, or she looked at it, Arizona, this is the job I, I really want because the uh, the former. Uh, good luck. Uh, the latter, okay, that's fine. She said today in her press conference, Arizona's the only job she would have left Missouri for. And my immediate question was, okay, so what's the only job she'll leave Arizona for? So when, yeah. when that yeah. when that comes up, um, you know, so uh, we hear that all the time. Uh, I know she graduated law school at uh, Arizona, and uh, she went to UCLA and, and things like that. So maybe there's that tie-in. But I just wonder what it means on the open market for an athletic director if somebody was there um, and it seemed to be going well and this this committee uh, is formed and that person goes, yeah, I'm going to take less money to go to a worse situation in a conference that's um, lesser than than the conference that a lot of ADs want to get into. I mean, I don't know how much that does to limit the pool of athletic directors that they come in and think that maybe I'm taking the job in title only. And do I have power? Or is it the board of curators in this oversight committee as opposed to, you know, the power of me as an athletic director to go and make the decisions I want to make? Yeah, I mean, that's a valid thing. You know, I think especially when it comes to spending, you know, cause, mm-hmm. I mean, that's, yeah. the, that's the whole thing with an AD. It's like mm-hmm. the budget is yours. I mean, you, you have that power and control. Um and you don't want to believe that somebody else is pulling the strings there. At the same time, I think it will become more common. We just lost an entire Power Five conference, and money was the whole thing, yeah. right? And people can say, oh, you know, all these other leagues, you know, it was all about money. Yeah, it was about money. It was about when can you place yourself in this new era to ensure that you have a financial pipeline that's going to allow you to support athletics at this level. Like, that's what happened. So we're going to see more and more schools who go, all right, how are we using our money? What are we doing financially? Because we just went through a pandemic, and we just watched the entire Power Five League disappear. And if you believe the folks in the ACC, their top schools are thinking about leaving too. So I just think in a volatile moment like that, 
I think you will see more athletic directors, more leaders, more coaches uh, who will say, where can I go? And I ain't got to worry about that stuff because you don't want to be at a place where that's a concern. Yeah. Where it's a constant thing. You know, I I talk to coaches at D1 schools where you're like, oh, that's a D1 school. There's money there. I talk to coaches who had to fundraise in order to get breakfast for their kids. Like, this is something that everybody's rolling the money is ridiculous. But I think now with what's happened, you're going to see more and more schools that are going to say, wait a minute. How exactly are we spending every single dollar that comes through this department? Yeah, Missouri, since they joined the SEC in the nine years of uh, publicized uh, revenue expenses and everything and their financial um, uh, disclosings on all that stuff, uh, the revenue went from $76.3 million in their first year in the SEC to the most recent um, year of financial details of 2021-2022. Uh, $141.2 million, almost doubling in that time. And, uh, Myron, shocking, their expenses, uh, also rose at the exact amount (laughs) through the years. As, uh, as it's weird how that always seems to happen in athletic departments that they're spending right around the exact same amount of money they're, they're bringing in. Um, and I went, and I went back and looked and I'm like, in nine years, of the revenue and expenses that Missouri has and all of these different, you know, line items of, um, you know, uh, NCAA distribution, media rights, coaches, uh, salaries, institutional support, um, you know, facilities, debt, fundraising, camps. Uh, those are just like six or seven of the 30 different line items there that over the nine years of all of the money that was uh, brought in in revenue and all the money that was spent, Missouri in nine years is plus three million. <laughs> yeah, is a yeah. keeping. Uh, and, and and my worry, Myron, would be, and I understand why somebody would come in and go, okay, where's this money being spent? Public institution, all of that stuff. I understand that. But if you're creating a, an oversight committee of people that aren't in athletics in college and have regular jobs to then come in and go, well, hey, well, why are you spending now as much? Hey, you know what? We're, we're now making $30 million more in revenue than a few years ago. That should go back to the university or should go there. Like, well, you're in the SEC now. The last thing you want to do is start pinching pennies in the SEC if you feel like you've got a football program that's up and running, that you know this is a, a matter of keeping up with the Joneses, and you are in a position to where you are sort of um, uh, secure in your position, whereas the Pac-12 and the ACC and others are not. That would be the concern I would have is, is just if the oversight committee comes in and is like, no, we don't want you to spend money on that, or no, you can't really spend money on that. Like, There's been a reason the athletic departments have spent – generally what they've uh, brought in for years yeah. and years and years and years. Yeah, no, I mean, it was that, like that episode of The Office, right? Surplus episode. You can't have a surplus. You got to you gotta spend that money. Yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, so we get how, how they operate. But I do think you identify, like, again, what's really going on in athletic departments. It's the battle for, for where does the money go. Yep. Like, that's a real thing. Mm-hmm. Does it go to coaching salaries? Does it go to facilities? Does it go to more staff positions? Like, there is a battle across the country. Everybody in the SEC is not Alabama, where it's like, we ain't got to worry about anything. But there are a bunch of schools that are trying to figure out, okay, the money is coming in, especially if you're in one of those top two leagues in the SEC and the Big Ten. I think the Big 12, obviously, there's a financial boost coming there as well. But it's like, how do we put ourselves in a position to make sure that we don't ever have to worry about what we just witnessed over the last five years. The reality, man, is that athletic departments around the country are terrified. Like, they thought they were Teflon. And then mm-hmm. the pandemic happened, and schools that had never thought about cutting sports had to cut sports. And now you have a situation where you have realignment that's changing things so quickly. 
So I just think there are a lot of schools that are saying it's not just about the money coming in. It's how do we make sure that we are positioning ourselves so we don't have any of these challenges that other schools have had to deal with. And I just don't think it'll be unique to Missouri. I think other Mm -hmm. schools, again, will say, how exactly are we spending? I'll tell you there's something that's happening in colleges right now. You've got these pools of boosters who are being asked, where do I write my check? Is it NIL? Is it the new arena or the new stadium? Is it towards scholarships? Like, what do you want me to do? Is the coach's buyout? You have schools. <laughs> yeah, you have schools in the buyouts. What you have schools internally, where you have three, four, five different departments, three, four, five different sectors, if you will, that are cultivating the same boosters to try to get them yeah. to commit to whatever it is they want to build or do. So I just think it's a complicated time for athletics, yeah. man. And some of these schools are not rolling in it the way that people think that they're rolling in. Yeah, and I mean, just the, sort of the price of doing business in the SEC. Look, you're getting the uh, TV network deal. Uh, when they first got in the SEC, Missouri's coaching and staff total salaries of their athletic department was $26.5 million. Uh, and the uh, year 2022 was 46.1, and then facilities and overhead. Uh, their expense in 2022 was 10 million. Their expense in, or excuse me, their expense in 2012 was 10 million. Their expense in 2022 was 32 million. So they've uh, they've yeah. they've uh, spent 42 million dollars more in the nine years that they've uh, uh, that they've reported since the SEC. Uh, 22 million dollars more in coaching salary and facilities overhead per year. Uh, than they were when they first got there. They're bringing in more money, but also it's keeping up with the Joneses. So you want to keep Eli Drinkwitz? Yep. Okay, you're paying them the money to keep them. Because the last thing you want to do is have Eli Drinkwitz go somewhere else and be like, all right, well, let's start over. Well, that's okay, though. We saved $3 million on a coaching salary. Cool, but now the next coach comes in and sucks. Yeah. How much money are you losing by fans not showing up and support and everything else? Because right now, they've got it going pretty good. So whatever money he's cashing is probably going to be worth it. Facilities overhead, you're talking about the um, uh, the weight room, the, uh, the the renovation to the stadium, practice facilities, all of that stuff. I mean, Rick Bettina's talked about the, uh, the uh, I'll use shoddy, the shoddy facilities that St. John's has. <laughs> the yeah, shoddy yeah, facilities yeah. don't stop them from recruiting or don't stop them from uh, playing defense, but they have shoddy facilities he said you know missouri didn't have shoddy facilities but they're paying for it to not have shoddy facilities you know well and and it's not going to stop i mean that's the thing is like these these facilities that people have like remember when arenas and facilities lasted for 30 40 years like that's over yeah you know i mean you have people who have facilities that they built 20 years ago and they're going okay what do we have to do i think the other thing people don't realize is how much debt some of these schools have like there there is an immense amount of debt that some of these schools are dealing with um and a lot of this money is is going in that direction man you should look up cal and like what cal is dealing with the cal berkeley (laughs) athletics has the most ridiculous financial situation i mean they have like nearly a billion dollars of debt you know that they have to pay off in the years ahead so there's that component as well, the school that maybe renovated, made all these big changes, but guess what? Now the bill is due. So yeah. I, I don't think automatically the TV money that's coming in. And, again, the other thing I think about this, too, TV's changing literally by the day. We don't know what's going to happen a decade from now with college athletics and what kind of money is going to be available. So I think a lot of these schools, too, that are thinking, like, yeah, the money's here, but do we really want to spend all of it right now? and get ourselves in a tough situation as the TV yeah. landscape continues to change. 
Myron Medcalf is our guest from ESPN. Uh, the college basketball side of this for Mizzou is that, you know, a year ago uh, at this time we were talking about what looked like a really great hire uh, of, of Dennis Gates by Desiree Reed Francois, and it may still end up, end up being that. I am not saying that uh, you know he needs to be fired or anything like that. I think that's um, you know uh, uh, completely absurd right now. But the the question I would have, Myron, is the new AD comes in, he or she did not hire Dennis Gates. I think Desiree Reed Francois would have given him two more years regardless. Um and and he would have this next year and if it struggled, well then now you're on your final uh, chance. Whereas I think he's barreling towards 0 and nineteen in the SEC, 0 and eighteen regular season and then the loss in the tournament. And the new A D comes in, I think he's got one year to show improvement. Doesn't have to go to the tournament, but you can't have another year that's close to this one or then they move on, uh, the clock has sped up for Dennis Gates, I think is definitely an impact of, of a new athletic director coming in. Yeah, it's a, it's a tough situation. I mean, if, if, if you're Dennis, you know, because to, to your point, ADs love to put their stamps on programs. I mean, in college football, that's set. You, you're mm-hmm. trying to hold on to a coach, you know, and yeah. do what you got to do, probably future extensions if the success continues and things like that. But but in basketball, that's always an easy opportunity for athletic directors, new athletic directors, to say, "I have my guy," you know. And and there's always a prominent coach where a new AD wants to be able to say that. So yeah, I mean, anytime without last year, we'd be having a whole different conversation about this mm-hmm. issue, right? Yeah, for like sure. just because this is a different kind of free fall, right? But I think you come in the next year, Dennis won't be shocked. Everyone will know. Yeah, you gotta you gotta perform. I mean, we just watched Chris Holtman, who uh, has had uh, a lot of success at mm-hmm. different points in his career, uh, and then all of a sudden, Ohio State just just could not figure it out. He couldn't get them going, and he had the sub five hundred season last year, and then here they are uh, trending in a bad direction this year. I mean, but this is a guy who had a run at Ohio State. I think he was four out of five years in the NCAA tournament. 16 run with Butler, and they moved on. So um, I think if you're Dennis with a new coach, with a new AD, you'd have to assume I got to get back uh, to, to some winning ways in order to avoid a tough spot. Visiting with Myron Medcalf from ESPN College Hoops Insider, presented by Jackson County Casa. CASA-MO.org, Jackson County, CASA-MO.org. Um, let's talk about uh, the other two uh, local schools. KU goes to Oklahoma, trailing in the first half, looking like it's going to be yet another road loss for them, looking like it's going to be the same story of the three-point line being the difference and um, winning at home and not winning on the road, and then they turn it on and play some pretty good basketball. Defense steps up and plays some smothering defense. Um, they finally get a, a, a road win. How significant was that win for KU over Oklahoma on Saturday? Uh, that was really significant. I mean, they'd lost their four previous road games. Uh, I think five of their last six. I think you lose there, um, and that's debilitating. I mean, that's a really tough loss to recover from because you're not going to play the NCAA tournament at Allen Fieldhouse. And if you keep messing around, you're going to put yourself in a spot where you're a long ways from Lawrence. Uh, in that opening round. So I think it was critical for a team that's trying to hold on to a top seed. Again, that Houston, maybe they're going to outrun everybody at the top of the standing. They'd have to make a really strong run, uh, Kansas, to, to get back into that mix, I think. But if you would have lost five in a row, um, 
I think that would have been really, really difficult to recover from six of your last seven games on the road. Like this team has to prove to themselves that they can beat good teams outside of Allen Fieldhouse, and they haven't been able to do that uh, this season yet. Uh, so uh, until you do that, I think that would linger. That's why I thought Oklahoma was a really important game, especially mm-hmm. how they started uh, to prove to themselves. Like, okay, if we play better defense, which again, this is a top ten team defensively. We always talk about Kansas, what they do offensively, but this is, to me, their bread and butter. they got to be a really good defensive team that hopes the shots fall in the NCAA tournament, and they were that down the stretch against Oklahoma. Can they win these next four to set up that matchup on March 9th against Houston? Um, Texas at home, BYU at home. They go to Baylor. That's a tough one on uh, Saturday, March 2nd, and then K-State at home uh, would be a, a revenge game for them, and they're playing at home. I mean, three of the four games being at home where they've you know won games. Can they do that to set up what could be um, a, a game for a, a share of the Big 12 title if Houston drops one along the way? I mean, we're talking about Kansas, right? I mean, <laughs> you can literally not even tell me who's playing for Kansas over the last 20 years. And what you just asked, I would say, yes. That's like asking, you think Kim Kardashian can go viral again? <laughs> yes, it's Kim Kardashian. And this is Kansas, right? Like, so, like, Kansas is not a program that has to worry about the idea of possibility. We know it's possible, mm-hmm. and anything's always possible, I think, when you're KU. The question is, can you put it together? Yeah. Like, can you finish these next four games and set up that battle with Houston. Of course it's possible. Texas, that's obviously a team that I think most people expect you to beat. BYU, playing them at home is a lot different than going on the road against BYU. The scheduling helped them out, right? Uh, and then you got to go to Baylor, where Baylor obviously is a very good team. At the same time, we've seen sort of their hit and miss stretches even in that building. You host Kansas State in sort of the revenge game after the first loss uh, in Manhattan. And, yeah, then you end up going March 9th and you have a game for, for the Big 12 title. But my guess is Bill Self is saying next game. Mm-hmm. Like I think this is just a team that has to get back to feeling confident in its ability to compete uh, in some of these tough games. And, and to me, the best league in America. Uh, and they did that down the stretch against Oklahoma. They can certainly build up that momentum again and finish strong. But it's Kansas, man. Like that's like it's like you know. Hey, which luxury car are you gonna take? Uh, billionaire? I mean, you know, yeah. like well, y'all don't have that perspective, right? Because y'all been winning. Y'all win everything down there. Like y'all have had a, a, a hell of a run. But I think with Kansas, of course, I mean everything seems possible. Writing down uh, KU, the Kim Kardashian of college basketball. Right. It's so. kind. It's kind of like that. Right. Like I mean, of course they can. Of course they can do it. You know, <laughs> Myron Metcalf from ESPN is our guest. Um, you know, uh, how, how dire is it for uh, K-State in the postseason, these last couple of games of uh, TCU falling uh, that three-point shot at the buzzer, losing by three, that had gone into overtime. We know K-State would have won that game. Uh, and then Texas, yeah. man, they kept fighting back and falling back, fighting back and falling back and fighting back and falling back, uh, and they end up losing by six to uh, Texas. How dire uh, and rough was uh, this uh, these past couple of games for um, uh, for Kansas State these last few days? It was really tough, man, because, you know, they had that stretch where they were mostly getting destroyed. Right? Like mm-hmm. Iowa State, Houston 20-plus, Oklahoma at 20-point loss at home I thought was devastating. Then they lost to Oklahoma State, which was like, hey, you can't lose that. Then they beat Kansas. And it's like all is well, right? All is right in the world. Um, and then you go to BYU, and that's not a place, you know, in that environment where you can afford uh, to, to not, 
be at your best, and they couldn't get that offense going there, uh, even though it was a six-point game. Then TCU right there, but no one's going to care because it's still a loss at the end of the day. And then I thought the Texas loss, uh, you know, last night was more of like, is this team, you know, what last year's Kansas State team had, like suddenly you could tell they had this self-belief, if you will, this self-confidence, mm-hmm. where in those moments they were going to figure it out. It, you know, they, they just had that kind of makeup. And you have the key players they have, you're allowed to do that. You're able to do that. This team feels like they're trying to hold on or maybe even looking for somebody or something to tell them it's possible. I love Tyler Perry. I mean, he, I, I was in the NIT when he was at North Texas. Incredible player, right? But this is still a new face, a new guy at this level. Um, and I think they're just looking for a spark, man. And you lose six out of seven, seven out of eight. It's hard to get that back, man, no matter how good your coach is. Uh, so I think that was definitely a devastating stretch. Yeah, I mean they they they've sort of had that belief. They've had that we're going to make the plays under Jerome Tang, and and for whatever reason that's not going on right now. And I mean they they, they fought back. I mean they were down twelve points to Texas after the flagrant two, uh, and the next thing you know, forty seconds later they're they're down four. <laughs> like hold on, what happened? Yeah. You get a four point yeah, play, yeah. you get a, a miss front end, you get another uh, bucket on the other end, you get a miss, and then all of a sudden you've got the ball, and Tyler Perry has a layup. And, and and that to me is sort of the um, uh, the epitome of, of what we've seen. Like that 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 snapshot of K State lately, unfortunately, is the fight, the fight, the fight. You're down four. Tyler Perry, great move, gets the bucket. He makes that shot. You know, nine yeah. times out of ten. You know, uh, forty eight times out of fifty or something like that. And it just a little too hard off the backboard, hits the rim and falls out. And it's like. Wow, you were about to be down two with 30 seconds to play uh, after being down 12 with uh, two minutes to go. And instead, it's free throws the other way. You're down six. Come back and miss an easy alley-oop. Now you're down eight and ball game. It's like, it's right there. But the plays weren't made. Yeah. And the plays always seem to be made with Jerome Tang. And it's just not happening right now. But it also shows the, um, you know, the, the how difficult it can be when those games are close. The way the ball bounces one way or another. Um, you know, don't put yourself in that position. And then you don't rely on having to come back from 12 down with two minutes to go, but um, they're, they're definitely in a position now to where they've got to start making some plays and winning some games. I think they can uh, definitely do it over the next couple. Um, they can beat BYU. They can beat West Virginia, uh, and we'll see what they do going to Cincinnati and then going to Kansas and then you know playing at home against, uh, against Iowa State. We'll see, but they need to start rattling off some wins uh, quickly. Myron Metcalf from ESPN College Hoops Insider. Myron, you're the man as always. Very much appreciate the time, sir. Enjoy the basketball and the sports and whatever, and we will talk to you next week, sir. Sounds good. Absolutely. There's uh, Myron Metcalf. Great stuff from him, man. Uh, he is uh, benefiting Jackson County Casa when we have Myron on. Court-appointed special advocates are uh, Casa, uh, community volunteers just like you. Stand up and speak out to help children who have experienced abuse or neglect. Jackson County Casa recruits, trains, and supports the Casa volunteers to advocate for the best interests of children who are in the Jackson County family court system till they have a safe and permanent home. Jackson County, org is Jackson County Casa. We will take a timeout. We'll come back and we will head to Arizona where Jack Johnson, we will talk with him about the Royals down in Surprise. More Zone next.
All right, hanging out on this Tuesday edition of The Zone. Jason Anderson with you, Josh Briscoe, Dylan Michaels, heading up until 2 o'clock. We will talk with Todd Lebo. He'll hang out with us in the 1 o'clock hour. A little fact or fiction with Todd Lebo coming up an hour from now. Right now, let's head down to Surprise, Arizona, where we talk with our man Jack Johnson there on the scene with the Royals at spring training. Jack, what's up, man? How you doing? How's the uh, weather? How's the view right now? Hey, weather's even better than it was yesterday. It's not too hot uh, this time around. But, uh, yeah, lots of activity, man. Uh, it's been great the last few days. Full squad workouts are in uh, full swing up there. They're separated onto four fields out there. So lots going on, good weather, and, and we're staying busy as usual. Are you just walking from field to field watching? Are you getting out there and taking part in any drills? Are you uh, having a little coaching? Uh, what, what are you doing today as uh, all those uh, drills are going on? You know, we were we were talking about this among media members. Like, maybe we need a media game so we can earn yes. the respect of everybody out here. Like, well, you we think that you, you think that's going to earn the respect? <laughs> <laughs> Man, you know, it's, if I can if I can sit on the mound, maybe throw eighty, eighty one. Yeah, nice, some, okay. Some respect. Uh, we'll see though. Um, but yeah, just bouncing around from field to field. Uh, they're kind of separated into groups right now. Outfielders, infielders, mm-hmm. lots of fans out there as well. So it gets a little bit more chaotic and busy, but. Man, uh, you can't miss any action up there. It doesn't matter which field you're standing on. You get, you get the up close and personal, uh, you know, views of all of this. Uh, we just actually chatted with Seth Lugo. That'll be a great interview uh, that Seren Petro has. But all these guys that uh, are having fun out there, you can hear all the chatter. And, and like I said yesterday, the sounds of baseball, they're back, and it's pretty great to hear them. You know, you mentioned Seth Lugo, and one of the cool stories that I saw the uh, yesterday or the day before with Ken Rosenthal uh, talking about the, the connections that took place with uh, Will Smith being signed and then, you know, Will Smith getting on the phone and talking with uh, Chris Stratton and then Chris Stratton being friends with Hunter Renfro. They went to Mississippi State together. And uh, Will Smith uh, recruiting Seth Lugo and talking about the family aspect. And Seth Lugo's wife was worried about, you know, how many family members have kids. And then Seth Lugo talking to Michael Waka and, you know, and just the on and on down the line. Um, and, and Hunter Renfro talking to Adam Frazier and, and uh, bringing all these guys sort of together. Uh, that, that, that all took place. And and that was a big part of the offseason, obviously, Jack, why, why people are, are pumped up and excited about this year. But it then culminated with the Royals going and putting all the money they did into Bobby Witt. And it certainly sounded like, Jack, that without the first part of it and getting all those guys to sign, the second part in Bobby Witt agreeing that he wanted to be here and take a few years off free agency and sign that contract – would not have happened. Um, the the more significant thing to you, it's uh, is it what they've done in showing that they're serious and showing the fans are serious about going and making all those moves, or the significant investment in Bobby Witt. Well, I think it kind of goes hand in hand when you think about it, because there's so many parts to a long term extension, as we all know. And and for Bobby Witt Jr. to sign here long term, listen, they had to show that they were serious about contending. If I were Bobby Witt Jr. and Coming off a 106 loss season, I just had a you know MVP type of season. At least I got MVP votes. And then the front office does absolutely nothing. Well, I don't want to be here for a bunch of 104, 105 loss seasons. I may like my teammates, I may like the coaching staff, but it's important to know that winning is going to happen here. We want to win. We expect to win. And even if it doesn't show up on the field like this year, they're trying because the front office has to do that to convince players why it's good to come here. Hey, if it doesn't work out this year. We're going to try to fix things next year by spending more money or spending it in different areas. But that, to me, was always an important part of this, to convince Bobby Wood Jr. to stay here. I think he wanted to. I think that he loves it here. He loves being around everybody. But it's also important that you show a player like that 
hey, we're going to give you some help. We're going to give you a pretty good rotation. We're going to revamp this bullpen. We're going to go add a couple bats to this lineup and see where it goes from there. We're building this team around you. And it's important for fans, too. I think the fans needed to see a, a more than just a one-year deal, a cheap rental that you know that guy's going to be there for maybe 30 innings or something like that. Like, a role mm-hmm. to Chapman last year. Everybody knew he was going to be gone by June or July. You can't even really invest yourself into a player like that. Then we see Seth Lugo get a three-year deal. Walker get a two-year deal. Chris Stratton and Renfro get a year with an extra option there. These are guys that can stick around not only for this year, but for next year. And that, to me, is an important part for the fan. When you're building a team with a bunch of one-year deal guys, rental deals, it's just showing your fans, hey, you know, don't get too attached to these guys. If things go south, we're just going to flip these guys for prospects. And that's the way it's been since the World Series, or I guess I should say since 2017 when the core left. It's just been one-year deals, one-year deals, and then flip those guys the deadline. They're committed here. They're committed to winning. They're going to try to win. And now, like it's been said all day at camp, last couple days, hey, we can have this expectation. We can want to win. We also have to go out there and show that we can win and do it on the field. And it also it wasn't a charity case for uh, for Bobby Witt. Like they weren't just simply giving him the contract, saying, okay, we think he might be able to do these things in the future. Because last off season at this time. Uh, talking about the Royals, you know, my view was, look, the the best third baseman on the Chiefs, right, or uh, on the Royals right now, last offseason at this time, we were also talking about uh, Chiefs football and uh, winning a Super Bowl. But um, the best uh, third baseman on this Royals team is Bobby Witt, and the best shortstop is Garcia, and we'll see how it shakes out. Yeah, they're going to give Bobby Witt a chance to play shortstop, but at the beginning of 2024, he's going to be starting third baseman. By the way, nailed it, killed it. I absolutely uh, predicted that one right. But... It's a credit to Bobby Witt for making me look stupid because all he did in the offseason last year was say, okay, I was one of the worst uh, shortstops in baseball. Great. I'm going to go back and I'm going to start over. I'm going to start over from the beginning footwork, building uh, the defense. And the bat's going to play. I know my bat will be there. It's always been there. But why can't? Why has my shortstop defense been as bad as it's been? And all he does is show up and be one of the best shortstops in baseball defensively. He didn't just go out there and say, well, they're going to invest in me because I'm Bobby Witt. He went out there and said, I've got to prove to them that I'm worthy of being investing in. Absolutely. I think it was so important for him to show that, hey, I can back up all this talk with being a superstar player. At Royals Rally a few weeks back, I asked him about that pressure, you know, dealing with it, being a prospect, you know, since he was, what, probably 14, 15 years old. People have been telling him how great he's going to be and, mm-hmm. and how much expectation that he's had. That wears on you when you are a teenager and you're in your early 20s. And now that he's seen it, the, the sky's the limit for him. We were actually chatting with Alex Zumwalt the other day. He's like, the scary thing is he's still got more to go. Like, there's still a ceiling to be busted through after what he showed last year. And I'm assuming he's meaning, hey, MVP award, Silver Slugger award, being one of the best players in all of baseball – and that's when you realize how special a player can be. Not only can they flash the talent, uh, the speed, the, the glove work, it's also the work ethic as well. I think a lot of it was, was Jose Aguasil, the infield coordinator, working with him, making sure he fine-tuned a lot of those things. You know, He helped Michael Garcia make that transition from short to third base. They knew how important of a player that he was. And, you know, to make that transition over to third base, it's not as easy as some of these guys make it seem. But I also think it was very important, Jason, that he thrived at shortstop. I think when they drafted him, they viewed him as a shortstop. It's the way baseball goes, you know, ever since, at least in my lifetime, Derek Jeter, but goes far back beyond that. You recognize the shortstop. Mm -hmm. Shortstops are a very recognizable player at that position. It was important for him to shine there 
other than the hot corner. He could have been a good third baseman. He would have had the power to be a great third baseman, like an Alex Rodriguez. But there's a reason that shortstop just has that feel to it, that flair to it, and certainly Bobby Wood Jr. has that. Matt Quattrero talked earlier today, um, and um, was that today? Did, did he have his uh, media scrum today already, uh, Matt Quattrero? And you guys talked with him. Yes, he had it earlier this morning. Awesome. Um, and um, one of the things that uh, he had talked about is um, why Bobby Witt is the right guy to build this franchise around. Well, I mean, he, it's funny just seeing him come in here every day. It's such a special persona. You know, it's humble, but it's confident. People respect him, and I've, I've mentioned this a couple times, that when when a guy like Bobby earns the respect of a guy like Salvi so quickly in his career, that kind of speaks to the person he is and what people, the reason you would want to build around him. And, you know, you give those long-term contracts, there's a ton of risk in that, right? But the organization, rightfully so, in my opinion, feels like those risks are very minimal with a guy like Bobby because of his upbringing and the way he handles himself and all the he doesn't. He doesn't. He sidesteps those derailers or those landmines pretty well. I'm not saying they're the same player that they're going to have the same success. So uh, I don't want to answer the emails and the texts and the, <laughs> the tweets and all of that. But the the things that Matt Quattrero was talking about there certainly remind you of Patrick Mahomes, right? Of of all of the things that are going on of why you would invest in a player like this. A hundred percent. I think every team longs for a superstar like this. Of course, the the top teams out there, you can always buy a superstar, but there's something different uh, about Mm -hmm. having a homegrown superstar. And with the way the Royals have drafted for, let's go back decades here. I mean, going back to 2000s, yes, they've hit on some and Mm -hmm. we're very fond of the guys that won a World Series championship. I mean, even a guy like Luke Hochaver was a 1-1 pick. And we think fondly of him because he was getting rings. He was a guy that helped them get a World Series championship. But after that, in a lot of years, in the middle of that, they bombed a lot of those draft picks. And you never really know with the player. You never really know with the high schooler. But the fact this specific player, you know, a major league background, like a Patrick Mahomes, uh, he has this expectation, and they put it on him immediately. I remember with Alex Gordon, right, everybody was saying, oh, that's the next George Brett yep. right there. Savior. And I think that was too much to put on Alex Gordon. That's just You didn't need to. He was a great college player. But there's so many guys out there that've got the talent, they've got the the makeup, they've got the physical attributes. Mentally, though, I just don't think everybody can handle it. And Bobby Wood Jr. before he's turned 25, and kind of same with Patrick Mahomes, he can show that I'm different. Now, of course, the winning has to follow in the way that Patrick Mahomes has. But Bobby Wood Jr. is handling all this pressure. He knows he's a star. He's a centerpiece. When you go to a Royals game. The opposing fans go, I'm here for Bobby Wood Jr. In the same way that we went to Angels games or when the Angels would come here, I'm here for Mike Trout. Or when the Yankees were here, I'm here for A-Rod or Derek Jeter. You know, you had that star piece. The winning, I'm sure, will follow, the better that this team gets. But to have that makeup, to have the, the, the mental part of it, it's so big, it's so important. I would really say that few guys in this game, I'm not going to say you know single-handedly, like one, two, three, four, five, but I would say there's not a large percentage of guys that can handle all of that expectation and then show it out in the field that it's no problem to them. 
hanging out with Jack Johnson. He's down in Surprise, Arizona. You were talking about the different fields and, and broken up with infield and outfield. Um, and I know he hasn't played much outfield the last year, but uh, in my mind I thought, well, where's Nick Lofton? Is he just jumping back and forth? Is he going to the outfield? Is he going to, is he going to second base? Does he then run over to third base to do some first base? I don't know. Is he pitching? Um, is he doing some catching <laughs> with Salvi and Freddie? Like, uh, is he managing? With Is he going to be the bench coach? Like, where's Nick Lofton at in all these different um, uh, workouts and drills? Hey, you know, he is a guy that wants to go out there and just play wherever the team tells him to. And that, number one, is what makes him so likable. I think he's a damn good player. He's a first-round pick. And, yeah, I had the chance to sit down with him and not only ask him about how he's handling all these positions, but which one feels the most comfortable to him because he was a shortstop at Baylor. And here's what he had to say. Yeah, I'd probably say third base, man. Uh, it was something that uh, just being on the left side of the infield, it just feels comfortable to me. But honestly, just being in the dirt, uh, being anywhere in the dirt feels really comfortable to me. And uh, like I said, I'm, I'm really, uh, I've really taken on the role of the utility guy, and I'm really excited to be a part of it. You've kind of become this fan favorite so quickly here in Kansas City. I'm sure you've seen, you know, when you were down in Omaha, it's like, get this guy up to Kansas City, man. What's the rush on this? And what is it like for you, you know, to put in all that work to move to the minor leagues? And then you've got people at the big league level, fans of the big level, going, we need to get Nick Lofton up here now. Yeah, no, it's awesome. Uh, I'm very thankful for the fan base that has supported me through it all, through the ups and downs of of the grind of the minor league lifestyle and uh, very thankful to, just for the opportunity to just be a part of a, a special team and a, a special group of guys that I believe have a really, really big chance of making something special, uh, not just this year, but the years to come. Nick, if there's one thing you've really tried to work on this offseason, what has that been? Uh, honestly, uh, it's kind of been uh, just getting comfortable at first base. I think that was kind of the biggest one. Uh, that was one of the first or newest position that uh, I learned I didn't play it at all growing up. So my first uh, experience at first base was in AAA and three games before I got called up. So uh, I was getting comfortable at first base and then also kind of just refining some things in my swing, uh, trying to make it as uh, complete as possible to the point where I could just make the same move throughout 162 games and not have to really worry about mechanics. So uh, just trying to make sure that I can dial that in and uh, uh, make it something that just flows naturally and, and allows me to put myself in the best possible position to be successful at the plate. Yeah, I was going over uh, the roster projection here and guys that can you know fit certain spots. I'm not sold uh, that Nick Lofton breaks camp with this team. I don't think that's a bad thing because he needs Every day at B's, but ABs. But what really stood out to me with that is that this offseason, kind of working over at first base, he's comfortable at third, but he also understands the fact that Vinny Pasquantino is the first baseman on this roster. Then it's between him and Nick Prado, I'd probably say. And I'd take Nick Lofton's bat at this point over Nick Prado. But one thing you can definitely uh, figure out about him, anywhere he plays, uh, that's just okay with him he, he just wants to get to the big league level and a lot of those guys in the clubhouse they're willing to change positions and i would say that not a lot of teams out there have guys that are willing to move off their spot you know that you're naturally gifted in baseball and just really any sport but you're naturally gifted in baseball if his life he plays shortstop second base they had him playing uh, the outfield down in the minors and then they ask him to play first base for three games at mm-hmm. omaha before he comes up to the big leagues, and his second game in the big leagues, he's at first base. <laughs> For the fourth game of his career is 
wearing a professional baseball uniform, fourth, fourth game of his career ever playing uh, professionally at first base, um, and, and then goes and plays the most games at any defensive position for him with the Royals in September was at first base. Um, yeah, the uh, first of all, the natural ability to do that, but also the trust from the coaches to say you've only played three games at first base, but we're going to put you at first base in the major leagues. Yeah, I mean, that that's what makes some of these guys so easy to call up to Kansas City because it, with Adam Frazier, Garrett Hampson, you bring those guys in. Yeah. It's important to have depth. It's also important to have guys that can fill in a lot of different spots. If you need somebody out there to go play center field, a guy like Garrett Hampson can do that. If you need somebody to play second base, Adam Frazier can do it. The good thing with Nick Lofton, which is what he has over those guys, is there really isn't a position he can't play. Where I do think you know, somebody like a Frazier or a Hampson – they might be a little bit limited on where they could go to. Mm-hmm. Nick Lofton is so athletic. Uh, he's so quick. He's so flexible in all these positions. And one more thing, it, it's, it's someone to play a lot of positions. It's also another thing to play positions well. Okay, you, you, Anybody can be a super utility you know, player, but you could also be well below average at numerous positions. I think Nick Lofton could be one of those guys that no matter where you put him, he's not going to be a liability. Yeah, Billy Butler played left field for a while with the Royals. He so did. It's a matter of uh, playing a uh, position or playing it well. Uh, Jack, uh, playing it well there in Surprise, Arizona. Great stuff, man. I'm jealous of uh, the scenery and uh, walking around and just enjoying some baseball today. But enjoy it, and uh, we'll talk to you tomorrow, man. All right. Sounds good. Uh, thanks for having me on, guys. Absolutely. There's Jack Johnson doing a great job down in Surprise, Arizona, covering the Royals for us, along with Soren Petro, who had – Tons of interviews yesterday. Uh, Alex Zumwalt and uh, Vinny Pasquantino, and I'm forgetting about four other different, uh, I believe he, he talked to J.J. Piccolo yesterday. There's about uh, ten other uh, people that uh, Sorin Petro talked to yesterday down in uh, Surprise, and uh, they'll be doing the same thing today as well, and more of that conversation with uh, Jack Johnson and uh, Nick Lofton. Uh, there as well. So we'll take a time out. We'll come back, continue rolling. Todd Lebo will join us at 1 o'clock in the uh, friendly confines and the beautiful weather of the Sports Radio 810 studio. More Zone next. We'll talk with Todd Lebo coming up in the 1 o'clock hour. Play some fact or fiction. You know, if you're wondering if we're going to do this every day the ans- or every year, the answer is yes. We are going to do this every year. Guest commentary in the Kansas City Star that the uh, Chiefs players drinking at Super Bowl rally sent the uh, young fans exactly the wrong message. So um, waxing poetically about how people celebrating a championship at a parade was uh, the wrong message for the kids. I know the one thing my son took away from that was the drinking part of it. Yeah. That's what we've had to talk to him about. But I'm glad we're focusing on that as part of it. Thank God we're, we're getting to the bottom of players celebrating. I've had to talk to my son multiple times about somebody drinking a beer. That's what we've been talking to him about a lot. That specific thing since the Super Bowl parade. That's the focus.